0: Hi, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. We're popping in here with a very special announcement. For the month of March, we are releasing five new episodes, and we need your help. That's right. If you listen to Film Strip Podcast on Apple
1: Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, we need you to leave us a written review for the show. These help the show reach a bigger audience, and that is what we want to do. Expand the reach. Even if you listen on another platform, you can still write a review on Apple Podcasts.
0: So as a gift back to you for this, for every five-star written review we receive, we're opening up the suggestion box to you all. That's right. At the end of your review, leave a comment with a movie you want us to review. Only caveat is it has to be something we haven't already reviewed. For a list, check out the archives. So at the end of March we'll gather all the suggestions and we'll pull a winner out of the hat and review that movie in one of the coming summer months when we're usually doing our bi weekly release. We'll do a special bonus show. We know we need the reviews to help expand the show's reach, and we figured since we were asking for this, least we could do is take a suggestion from one of you for our future show. And so once again, leave us a five-star written review on Apple, CastBox, Google, or Stitcher sometime in the month of March. Suggest a movie you want us to review, and at the end of March, we'll pull the suggestions and select a bonus review from you, our fabulous audience.
1: Now, on with the show. Welcome to Filmstrip.
0: These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section
1: 504, C2, Title 17.
0: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of A Night at the Opera, starring Groucho, Chico, Harpo Marx, Alan Jones, Kitty Carlisle, Walter King, Siegfried Ruhmann, and Margaret Dumont. Directed by Sam Wood, released in 1935, the first of five MGM films for the Marx Brothers. It was a critical and commercial success, and I've noticed that we're doing like the resume, or the reverse chronological order, A thing on this retrospective. Usually we go in date order, but the way we've laid these out, we're going, we're going in reverse.
1: Yeah, we're, uh, starting with their, what's, what was essentially their last MGM classic and working our way back to the Paramount days. And one of the reasons why I decided to do that was because the Night at the Opera is one of my favorite Marx Brothers movies, if not my absolute favorite Marx Brothers movie. And it was also Groucho's favorite movie. Really? So now, what was his reasoning for that? Because I, I gotta say,
0: after watching him last time, I I thought he was doing a lot more with Hackenbush than than this character. So that's interesting to hear.
1: Uh, I'm not sure why he's just he's just always maintained that this one is his favorite. I think because um, you know it's the first film in a new place, and I know they worked pretty hard on it, uh, even to the point of bringing in um, a famous gag writer to do the stateroom scene.
0: Yeah, I've read a good bit about that. Again, I had no memory of this one at all. I think I had at least seen parts of Day at the Races last time. This one, man, was totally new. But what I do know is I've seen what this wrought in popular culture. Not maybe not too long afterward. Like I think there are several Looney Tunes skits that are totally like built around this. Like Bugs is leading the orchestra a few times. You got Elmer Fudd singing the Marriage of Figaro. Like the, all that seems to be very much in the same vein of Night at the Opera
1: for the March Brothers. Yeah, there's definitely uh, an immediate influence because this was their uh, biggest hit while at um, while at MGM, and it was their biggest hit overall which might be why it's Groucho's favorite. <laughs> that
0: that could also be true, as, as we know. So, well, all right, Ron, let's not delay any further. Go ahead and give people a plot summary for a night at the opera that we can get to talk about the movie.
1: All right. Otis B. Driftwood, after one too many schemes and one too many missed dinners with rich widow Mrs. Claypool, finds himself in need of a major success in order to keep his position as Mrs. Claypool's business manager. To that end, he's going to get her to invest in the New York Opera Company and signed the greatest tenor since Caruso, Rodolfo Laspari. Unfortunately for Otis, he doesn't particularly like opera, and the guy he does sign isn't Las Pari, but an unknown talent named Ricardo Baroni, that's our Alan Jones character, who drifts with his hoodwinked into signing by Baroni's friend Fiorello, that's our Chico. Baroni and Las Pari are in competition for the affections of the beautiful Rosa, Kitty Carlisle, and in the ultimate trump card, Laspari is going to move to New York after being signed to the opera by Herman Gottlieb, and he's taking Rosa with him. That is, until Fiorello, Rodolfo, and Tommaso, that's our Harpo character, sneak on board a luxury liner in Driftwood's steamer trunk. The three stowaways are eventually caught by Las Parry and taken to the ship's brig, only to be rescued by Driftwood. The three assume the identities of three famous aviators to sneak off of the ship, only to get pulled in front of New York City's mayor for a big radio pronouncement that they have to weasel their way out of. Their identities are eventually discovered, and the three hide out with Driftwood while being pursued by a police sergeant named Henderson. They dodge Henderson, but Ricardo is caught wooing Rosa by Las who fires both Rosa and Otis from the opera company. Cue the March Brothers having their revenge. Otis takes the place of Gottlieb, working on the Widow Claypool. Tommaso and Fiorello sabotage the opera, destroying sets, ruining instruments, and generally creating havoc. In the fracas, Las Pari is incapacitated by the Marx Brothers and Gottlieb is forced to turn to the only tenor who knows the show he can find, Baroni. Baroni and Rosa hit the stage, bring the house down, and when Las Pari shows up to try to take an encore, he's booed off the stage. Baroni's a hit, Rosa gets to be with her man, and Otis and company win back their place in the good graces of the opera and its wealthy widow patron as credits roll. That's a really good plot summary,
0: and this one's plot heavy. You know, we talked about last time that it was a pretty simple set of gags where they're just trying to save the sanitarium. This time, like we've got multiple locations, we've got a lot of different scams going, and we've got some pretty big moments in this. I mean, I think of anything anybody might remember from *A Night at the Opera*, it's that stateroom scene and then the contract scene. That we're definitely going to talk about. It. That's a gag that they they reprise in the end. And just all of the goopy stuff that Chico and Harpo get into as they're wrecking that opera. I mean, we got a game of baseball with a violin and all kinds
1: of stuff in this one. Well, that's one of the things that um, Irving Thalberg brought to the Marx Brothers. One of the things he first told them when he signed to MGM was that they needed to be a little bit nicer. Because um, in their earlier movies, there's a lot more of an anarchic spirit. And they're basically attacking anybody who gets in their way in a a funny way, of course. Uh, And in this one, he's like, you guys don't really appeal to uh, women, which is a major part of our audience. So we're going to up the production values. We're going to get some of those fancy MGM musical numbers in. We're going to bring in people like Alan Jones and Kitty Carlisle, who was a legit opera singer. And we're going to kind of make you guys a little bit more relatable and uh Just a a slight bit nicer, which is really funny because Thalberg, while being friends with and gambling partners with Chico, had a couple of really interesting um, experiences while dealing with the Marx Brothers, like (laughs) off the set. Oh, please do tell. Okay, so Thalberg was one of those guys who, because of his youth, he was extremely young to be the guy in charge of a, a major Hollywood studio, especially back in the 30s. He was only in like he was only like 36 or 37 at this point. So he's a really young guy, especially to be like the dude in charge of MGM. Even today, you don't get to be in charge of MGM when you're 37 unless you're like Robert Evans. Um, and this was another genius level, like uh, producer type guy. Um, so one of the things he was famous for doing would be he would bring people to his office and have them wait in outside while he took phone calls. So one day he has the Marx Brothers sitting out there, and he's taking phone calls all day long. So at the end of the day, at 5 o'clock, his secretary leaves. So there's the three Marx Brothers sitting there, and then Thalberg's still in his office, still making phone calls, still ignoring the Marx Brothers. So what they do is they move all of the furniture in the office in front of the doors to Thalberg's, uh, to Thalberg's uh, <laughs> suite so he can't get out. <laughs> after that first ex- after that first experience, he's more, like, amenable to actually taking his meetings with the Marx Brothers while he's supposed to. But then he'll do this thing where, you know, he's a very important man, so people will call, people will interrupt, he'll have to go put out fires, et cetera, et cetera. So he would leave in the middle of meetings with the Marx Brothers to go do other things. And, of course, that went over about as well as you might expect. So one day he goes off to some sort of meeting. Uh, in a different part of the lot and leaves the Marx Brothers in his office, which is a big mistake. When he comes back to the office a couple hours later, the three Marx Brothers are sitting naked in front of a roaring fire in his fireplace, roasting potatoes on sticks. (laughs) So he comes (laughs) over, he comes over, he sits down with them, they give him a potato, he eats it, and then after that, their their, uh, business and professional uh, uh, relationship improved quite a bit because he realized these yeah. guys were not going to put up with any of that stuff. I think
0: you've described it well when you talk about their early stuff, the, the Paramount stuff, that not only was their style anarchist, and, like, I've looked up a lot about the Barks Brothers just as we started recording these shows and stuff, and I keep seeing that word pop up, like a keyword in Google and stuff. And I'm like, okay, what's that all about? And I didn't really dig too much further than that, other than I thought maybe that's you know how they describe the style of comedy. But it's just like these guys were... Were, uh, you know entertainment terrorists in a lot of ways <laughs> like man they, you know like i've heard stories of like ice cube you know totally wrecking some you know uh record exec's office because his album didn't he didn't get the cut off of and he thought he's supposed to or something like that like i think it was a straight out of Compton movie and ice cube cops to doing that so look like, that sounds like the same kind of thing <laughs> you know it's just you're you're staging sit- naked sit-ins In your boss's office. Holy (laughs) cow. Uh, That explains a lot about what goes on in this movie. And if if it hadn't been a different day and time, we might have gotten some of that in this. And I do love this opening dinner scene where we get Margaret Dumont again, who, again, just the straight man to play opposite of Groucho. It's the perfect pairing. We we wooed about that last time. And I'll say it again. I love how everybody's trying to woo her. And they're so good together in this opening scene where he's, having dinner with somebody else. And then he shows up. Says, oh no, I was, I was thinking of you. And matter of fact, everyone that reminds me of you, except you, which is weird because you <laughs> remind me of you. And it's just this whole, I don't know. It's just goofy, but it, I, I remember sitting in the cast laughing at this uh, hysterically.
1: Yeah. Any scene where it's Groucho and Margaret Dumont tends to be really funny. Uh, and this is one of the best ones because you can see the back of his head the whole time she is talking and complaining that he didn't show up for dinner so he's been sitting right there behind her the entire time and hasn't hasn't said anything for at least an hour
0: right which is just amazing that again this this guy who's her business manager and she
1: is really wealthy by the way like I, she so. was worth uh she was worth 8 million dollars but of course Otis yeah. only knew she was worth 7 million dollars but that extra million didn't <laughs> change how he felt about her
0: yeah exactly
1: right and, and i love how he's always uh
0: you're trying to say you can marry me then divorce me and then we'll be together again or something like that like it's all this stuff but he's trying to get her to drop 200 grand on this opera and i did look that up but that's 3.75 million dollars in 2020 money that's some serious dough now i know operas are expensive but that's like i mean that's that's real expensive
1: like this is about to be a serious opera that's like spider man turn off the dark money Yes, it is. It is Julie Taymor burning money. (laughs) That kind of money. That's
0: exactly what that is. Uh, Wow, that would be awesome, by the way, if we could just lay some of that music into this. That would be a fun fan ad someday. (laughs) Uh, Because I own that soundtrack. I never got to see the show, but I did own the soundtrack because I had friends that went and saw it and raved about how insane it was (laughs) and that it was everything they thought it could be in terms of bad. And uh, So I bought the soundtrack and I remember going like, Wow. It's just as bad as they described. So, um, if you ever want to hear somebody like do covers of not good U2 songs, that's your soundtrack. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm on this opening bit. I think it's funny how he, he cons her into it and he, she's going to go along with this. And you've got, you know, you've got the, the, the other stuffy gentleman with his nice beard and whatnot and all this going on. And I, I, I realized then I'm like, okay, that's going to be his rival for this movie. Is that guy who's going to try to be running the business while he's supposed to be the business manager?
1: And if you you recognize him, that's Sig Ru- that Sig Ruman, who was the uh, doctor who showed up in our previous, uh, or one of our other Marx Brothers movies that we saw. Yes, exactly. Yes, and he's kinda, the, I, yeah. and he's part of like the ensemble cast of uh, straight men, and he's really good in this movie because number one, he looks like twenty years younger than he did as the uh, psychiatrist. In a day at the races, and number two, he's one of those dudes who's got a great face for being angry. So he yes. just looks like he's on fire this whole thing, and the the big crazy goatee. Uh, not that I should say anything about people with crazy facial hair. Is uh, since I'm <laughs> a, yeah. Everybody since,
0: look at the cartoon. That's that's an actual rendering.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's actually longer now than it was when the cartoon was made. So I look more like one of the famous aviators that we see later in the movie. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about those beards later because I did, I did think about you
0: in watching that, um, and I have questions. Uh, but no, I love. I, you're right. He has the face for anger, and he reminded me so much. And I'm going back to because I know I mentioned it in, in Day at the Races, but Top Secret rips off the Gar- Marsh Brothers so much. Oh, it and does. There's, yeah, there's this part where Val Kilmer is supposed to go out and sing a song and he's really it's supposed to be this other like famous German tenor, but he just jumps in front of him and sings, you know, Good Golly Miss Molly or something like that. And <laughs> which is I mean, just think about that for a minute. <laughs> but the look on the guy's face is exactly what Sig Ruvann is doing here. It's the same thing. He's got that pointy, kinda of devilish beard and he just looks infuriated the whole time. And I I do love that about about that guy and um, when you've got him, you've got Margaret Dumont, who's not only a good straight person, but she's sort of oblivious to everything, too, which makes her even more perfect. And then you've got Gracho, who's just ripping them off, you know, zing, 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 zing. Um, it makes for a good setup. And and I do dig the setup of this completely because it's a big shift when we finally get to the opera place. I mean, it's like we went to a completely different show all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, it definitely is um, a, a, a a big shift in tone. But for me, this is one of uh, Alan Jones's better roles, uh, especially in the Marx Brothers movie, because he's got such a great voice, and they, they make such good use of his voice in these opera scenes. They do, and and I, I like
0: his whole story with Rosa. I thought he and Kitty Carlisle had really good chemistry
1: with one it, another. And it's funny because of the two, uh, Alan Jones is not, was not a trained opera singer. I mean, he's clearly a singer, but he wasn't an opera singer. And uh, Kitty Carlisle was actually an opera singer, but she was the one they wanted to dub. Like for her performances, what? they wanted to dub her with a different opera singer. When she found out about it, she said, "She said that's fine. You could just make the movie with her." And she left. Ooh. And so they eventually <laughs> caved and brought her back. Which is wild because, I mean, she legit performed with the New York Metropolitan Opera. And she went and she sung with them like for, geez, 20 or 30 times. So she and, and this was like 20 years after this was like in 1966. She started performing with the Met. So, I mean, she continued to be an opera singer and to do like one woman shows well into her advanced years. Well, I I thought, again, she
0: was fantastic in this, had had such a beautiful voice. And I'm not a fan of opera. That's just not my thing. If that's your thing, that's great. Uh, But this is not something I listen to. But I do appreciate good voices. And I loved her voice, and I loved her voice when it went with Alan Jones, too. I thought not only did they have character chemistry together, and you kind of buy their sort of star-crossed lover story and the, the sweetness of it, you know. Um mm-hmm. But th- they sang well together, too. And when I say about the sweetness, like, I thought he and the lady running the sanitarium and Day at the Races had kind of a cute sort of silly relationship. But I didn't – I don't know. Just, he and Margaret O'Sullivan didn't really have, like, what I'd call chemistry. They were – they were both pretty, and you could kind of, you know, send them together or whatever. And he could sing to her, and she could, you know, make doe eyes at him. But this woman looks like she's like, hang with it. Like she's funny too. And she also yeah, is she, kind of coy, playing off that, you know, Laspari is definitely like pursuing her. Uh, but she's like, mm, I'm only really going to talk to you because it's worth a good dinner when Alan's busy or something like that. <laughs>
1: yeah. She talks to him because it's good for her career. But, yeah, she definitely – there's definitely some something there with her and Alan Jones, and their voices do sound great together. And she is actually one of – she's a really funny performer in her own right. And, and you see her – she's really funny later on in the movie when we get to the uh, – when they're eating – I believe they're eating dinner on the boat or they're on the boat. Yeah. she's She's talking about how much she misses Ricardo, and he's – and and Otis drops very subtly, and by subtly I mean not subtly at all. That Ricardo has snuck on board the boat with him, and yeah. her 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 facial
0: reaction to that is really funny. Yeah, no, she has she has good timing all around, and is is a really good actress, and is fun in this. And again, her and Jones have good chemistry together i I agree with you i thought he had a much better role this time last time he was just kind of a bumbling idiot this time he's he's just a struggling actor he's just a working guy trying to get by you know and waiting tables on the side you know whatever he's doing just to get by and what what i didn't realize until i I paid a little closer attention to about halfway through this like wait a minute they're all in italy and they're sailing to new york i'm like well this guy's resourceful because he's doing the the jack dawson yeah, he's over there, and he's got to get back over here. And all I needed to do was be playing some poker and talk about luck or something, and then we would have the Titanic moment.
1: Well, Thankfully, me, there
0: were no doors they were going to wind up on together.
1: Well, let me tell you that there's about nine minutes of this movie, particularly the Italy part that establishes that they're in Milan, that ended up on the cutting room floor because of growing ten, Well. The studio never said it was because of growing tensions related to World War II, but this movie came out in, what, 1935? So yeah. you can kind of put two and two together and, and get Mussolini. And it, I, uh, and it kind of cuts the legs out of one of Chico's best jokes, too, because Groucho asks him if it's always that crazy around here or whatever, and, 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 he, and Fiorello answers, I don't know, I'm not from around here. And his fake Italian accent, yes. I, I was just about to bring up good
0: old Fiorello here. So we talked about how Chico, or you mentioned it last time, that he often played like Italian characters. That was sort of his shtick, but he did it badly. And mm-hmm. I, I got every bit of that in this, because he has this very Italian accent, and then he's like chef of boyardee, and then it just gets worse, <laughs> and then he's just a hustler. Like at some point, I'm like, man, I guess he just gave up. I don't know uh, I'm trying to keep that accent going the whole time. But I, I when I first saw him and he started talking, I was like, oh man, is he gonna keep that up the whole time? And I was not disappointed in that. Oh no, the answer is emphatically no.
1: Yeah, his uh, New York sneaks in quite a
0: bit in this. Movie. I mean, you can't hide it, man. It's like that hair, it's and that nose that he's got.
1: It's just part of who he is. Yeah, the the faster he talks, the more Brooklyn he sounds. Yeah, big, or, I guess, um, or I guess technically, I think then it was the Lower East Side of Manhattan.
0: Yeah, well, what we would call Brooklyn nowadays, right? So, but you know what's neat here is that we're actually introduced to Harpo before we get to him, uh, really, because and, and poor Harpo gets beat to pieces. Les Parry like gets a whip after him, and I'm like, man, this is this is abuse. This poor man. What what in the world?
1: And do you know how old Harpo was uh, when he made this movie? No, how old is he? He was 47. This is elder abuse. What's going on? In this movie? And, and, and when he's getting whipped, he's getting hit for real with a whip. Oh yeah, they're he's actually getting—he's yeah. getting hit hard. He's laying it in. And later in his life, he said, "You know, uh, one of the things I probably should—I probably should have let the stuntman do more of the work in *A Night at the Opera* because he got really physically beaten up on the set, not just in this scene, but in general. Because he does a lot of physical comedy, uh, and yeah. especially later on in the movie." When you see Harpo like dangling from ropes outside of the ship or hanging from the rigging in the opera house, that's Harpo hanging from that stuff. That's him going up and down. And his hands, at the end of a day of shooting, his hands would be bleeding because he spent so much time holding to the rope. I can believe it. He takes an absolute pummeling this entire movie. Some of it
0: self-inflicted. A lot of it, in fact, but but some of it from the other people. I'm like, man, the guy that got doing Lesparre, man, he's he's a complete jerk. And like you, you talk about like set up mustache twirling villain of all time, right? Like he, like that's the only thing he didn't do is actually twirl the mustache because he's he's whipping uh, Tommaso, uh I love these names by the way because they just do not fit the faces that they're given to, but okay, no. uh, except it, Otis it, it, Griffwood, that totally works. But Tomasa's just getting pummeled and then turns around and go, oh, Rosa, you know, oh, yes, sir. Come into my quarters and do your job now. And I'm, oh, man, I'm like, yeah,
1: I remember being the low guy on the pole. That's that's lame. Yeah, that's the great uh, Walter Wolf King, who actually was a singer himself. But they ended up dubbing him for the movie because he was like a musical singer, not an opera singer. And he didn't have a strong enough voice to do the opera parts. Right, yeah. I was going to ask you about that.
0: How many people they dubbed, and then you told me that it's only him.
1: Yeah, it's only him for the the one scene where he's singing the the uh, Il Travator.
0: I wondered, I wondered how much of him was there, and, and or if any of it was. And I guess not, none of it really. Uh, but I I got to say though, I did like the guy. I, I mean, as is, is evil as he is, and as horrible as his character is, he plays it so well. Like everybody here seems to have really been cast. And have had gotten a good sense of what their character was supposed to be on the page. So I know the March Brothers worked out a lot of the skit stuff off site again, like they normally would and then brought mm-hmm. it in. But everyone else seems to be able to just fall right into place with it, which is pretty good. I mean, I know some of them are staples of their act and stuff, but you know, some of them aren't. And so that's just the sign of good performers that can pull that kind of thing off.
1: And it's funny because, uh, Sam Wood, the director of this movie, and Groucho didn't get along. Uh, what famously, Sam Wood has has been said to have said after one yet another disagreement with Groucho, uh, he said, "Well, I guess that just shows you can't make an actor out of clay." And Groucho shot back, "Yeah, and, I, and you can't make a director out of wood because <laughs> his name was Wood." Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, wow. these guys these guys were every bit as 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 fiery as you could expect in real life as they are on the screen, which is one of the reasons why these movies work and why these, I think Mm -hmm. the the persona that that the brothers uh, take on works so well for them because, you know, there's a lot of Groucho in Groucho and there's a lot of Harpo in Harpo and there's a lot of Chico. Chico. I mean, the whole point of Chico is that he got the nickname because he was a chicken chaser, chicken being slang for women like birds Right,
0: right. And, and look, contention on particularly comedy movie sets and things like that is nothing new. Like there's stuff of legend about like Harold Ramis and Bill Murray just going after each other at, on, on different, you know, on uh, different movie sets and things like that. And, you know, it really restrained their friendship for a number of years. They finally made up before Ramis, died, I understand. But uh, I mean, there, there's stories about that all the time that people trying to keep Chris Farley in line and just having no idea what to do. You know, and and trying to rein that in, and then uh, even Eddie Murphy, you know, too. Uh, just how how do you put your hands around when that is exploding? And Jim Carrey, and you know, all of them. I think I think you know, these comic uh, geniuses are, are the people that really just own their craft and comedy. I think like Sandler's in some of this stuff too. Uh, though he's a much more moldable actor, I think, than some of the others I mentioned there. But they they all like, they just had, like, I know what I want to get out of this character and I'm going to get it. And whether the director sees that or not, it May it may be really immaterial <laughs> at, at that point. And it takes a special one to be able to make that work. And sometimes just, you know, you can build the contention and it, it gives fire to the anarchy. Cause that's the one thing about this movie for sure. Last time, like they're, they're running a money scam this time. they're still a money scam, but they're really just there to kind of, I mean, Chico and Harpo don't, uh, don't really care. <laughs> like whether uh, this works. not. Chico kind of wants his buddy to get the job, um, but he doesn't even realize what he's doing in that great contract. scene. I think that's what we got to talk about that now. Cause oh, yeah. Tommaso knocks Les Pari out twice. Knocks him yeah. out. Make sure you wake him up with smelling salts. Then knocks him out again. And then <laughs> yeah. I love how Groucho's just got his foot resting on him. And his first thing to Chico was like, "Yeah, I shot him." Okay, mind if I <laughs> step on him too? No, go right ahead. <laughs> and then they just go back and forth. <laughs> oh, what's with all so the shoddy. wild? What, what's with all those wild edits and just jump cuts though in the the scene when Chico and,
1: and Groucho are going back and forth on that contract? Um, a lot of it was, uh, timing related. When this movie first came out, the, um, they, Irving Thalberg, like, the, when the movie first came out, it was basically dead on arrival. Um, not when it was released to, like, when the studio saw the first cut, I mean, excuse me. Um, Thalberg, uh, wanted to make sure that they had, you know, a nice strong story structure. He wanted the brothers to be more sympathetic. He wanted some musicals and some stuff. And, you know, he he had a specific idea of what he wanted. And the problem was that when the movie was shot, it was a little different uh, than he was expecting. So he went into the editing room with Wood and a few other people. And they chopped up a lot of stuff to shorten certain scenes and to make the timing quicker. So and one of the things that you got from the, uh, the contract signing scene is that they... They cut out some of the pauses and kind of pieced them together uh, to sharpen things up, make things a little quicker, make make the back and forth snappier. So you've got some of that rough editing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely some, some jumpy cuts and stuff. But
0: if you look beyond that and just listen to them going back and forth. It is amazing how, almost a 100 years later, how topical this still is. I kid you not. (laughs) Just the other day, I'm reading an insurance policy of ours. (laughs) And I'm looking at it, and I I consider myself to be fairly well-read, somewhat educated, been around a little bit, seen a lot of documents in my day. And I'm reading this, and I realize I, I don't understand what this means. Is this covered or not? (laughs) <laughs> and I have I just keep going back. And I remember calling someone on the phone from the interest company and going, Can you kinda explain this to me? And I at one point I thought I heard the woman say, Second party to the da da, da. and I I just sort of did a double take. <laughs> and I was like, well, Wait a minute, am I remembering the movie or did you just read that to me again? And it's amazing how that still exists to this day, that like legal and how Funny it can be, and I love how their whole bit is like, "Well, I'm just going to tear that out. Well, I don't know if I can live with that." And they, it comes down to like they have a they have like a post-it note by the time it's all said and yeah. done for the contract. Also, should be said, <laughs> Driftwood thinks he's negotiating for less pare when Chico is pitching for Ricardo. So
1: i it's it's insanity that goes on here. And the funny part about that is. Chico knows darn good and well that he has misrepresented who he's representing because uh Driftwood comes and says he wants the guy who sings in the show. And technically, uh, Ricardo, technically, Ricardo does sing in the show. He's one of the chorus. So it's not lying. It's just not also telling the truth.
0: Yeah, it's like if you're going to, you know, I, I want to bring Motley Crue to my birthday party. Motley's Foo <laughs> so sign or something like that. You like the, the tribute band or something like that. Um, or, you know, you think you're going to get Steelheart and Steel Panther shows up, uh, which <laughs> that, that would be, that would be a shock. I uh, thought Brian might dig that, but, uh, anyway, yeah, I, uh, I just thought it was, it was funny, but we've seen that before. And again, I, I looked at that trope and I thought, how many times have I seen that happen where someone weasels their way in? And they had no business being there. And I was trying to think of like, OK, let me think of a time when I saw that in a movie you know, that's, that I haven't already mentioned in the other show. And I thought of Michael J. Fox and The Secret of Our Success if you oh, remember that movie good, good which one. yeah yeah it's it's mostly a terrible movie I'll, I'll be honest with you it's not very good but he he gets a job in the mailroom and basically after an executive is fired they forget to clean out his office because you know corporations are stupid that's what the, what the whole point of the movie is and he becomes that person and lives a double life for you know 30 minutes in the movie and romances Helen Slater and he's a foot taller than him or whatever but you know th- there's all that and he sleeps with his aunt and you know hilarity ensues but i remember <laughs> thinking about you're watching this and I'm going like well it's it's just like that it's
1: exactly like that and and Fiorello is, is despite possibly not being able to read is still incredibly clever because he suckers driftwood in now driftwood does get him to sign uh Ricardo for only ten dollars a week <laughs> but it it, it, uh, it it's funny because it's like it, uh, Fiorello's one of those guys you can't tell if he's dumb or smart and he's kind of both and the same with yeah. uh, with uh, Otis Driftwood he's both dumb and smart and they're both con artists who walk away from this feeling like they got the better of the other guy when in fact they, it's basically they kind of drew yeah exactly but
0: it all works out in the end though because Les Party is most definitely signed to the opera to go. And that's when we get on our big sailing ship here. And I thought Ricardo and Rosa had like a real sweet moment saying goodbye and stuff um, mm-hmm. on the boat. With, uh, I, again. Yeah. I believe
1: the song is called alone that they sing yeah. to each
0: other. Is that yeah, I think, what you're referring to? Yes. Yes. That's what I refer to. I thought that was a great moment. And it just, again, reinforced the sweetness that those two characters had for each other and how how good they were together. I mean, Kenny Carlisle and him really had a thing and it, it, you could tell it worked. And Alan Jones looks like he's having fun here. Like there's one thing I'll say about day at the races. He looked like he was there, but he look like he was having a whole lot of fun. And maybe because that was, you know, the 24th time he'd had to do all that or something like that. But, and this wasn't at the end of that run, but I, I don't know. He just looked like he was having a good time and enjoying it. And I, I love I call it the call and response song, but I, I really enjoyed that moment. Um, but the real fun of that whole trip is Driftwood with his insanely huge suitcase, right? <laughs> uh, that, yeah. By the way, he's he's whipsed out of his hotel, right? His hotel bill. He lays that on somebody else, too. I'm like, man, this guy is – he is the con of cons. I,
1: yeah, I love a, this. A $540 hotel bill in 1935. Yeah. God only knows what he got to run that up.
0: Yeah, I know. I know I'm like room service every day you know so um where I work now man like I need an extra bagel and they want to know why you know so but anyway <laughs> so th- this guy is is coming through with all that and he wants to meet up with Miss Claypool because I, I love how he does stop he, he stops by Rosa's stateroom and he's got a little note from from Ricardo uh and she, you know she said you know she misses him or whatever and he's like well here you know I'll try to make you happy again sometime, you know, and does his little eyebrows, which was funny. And then he, he's <laughs> off to see Mrs. Claypool. And I love how he just lays down on the bed and she's like, get up from there. What will people say? And I, I forget what his response is. was like, who cares what they say? Let's get to it. You know, I'm like, man, Groucho kind of, kind of randy in this movie a little bit.
1: He, he has a way of, of saying nothing, but making it sound like a, a sex thing. It's pretty amazing, especially for 1935. And one of the things I I appreciate the most about the Marx Brothers is just how much dirtiness they were able to get away with just by making it solely about Groucho's inflection and his eyebrows.
0: Right, right. It's all in the way he looks and the way he kind of darts his eyes at her and stuff like that. And, of course, Margaret Dumont is just sitting there totally oblivious to all of this. And to hear Groucho tell it was totally oblivious to the joke anyway. That's why she played it so well. But I, I loved I thought he was great. And I love how he's he's rolling around on the cart. I, I want to ask you, as Groucho starts belting out and singing, I'm like, are, is that him? Or did they dub that out too? No, that's him. Yeah, that's wow. all him. He's got an incredible voice. Like, he really does. I, I did not expect that. I thought he, he would not be the musical one, considering how musical Chico and
1: Harpo are. Well, but that's... That surprised me, though. That's funny because he also was a great guitar player. He just he only plays guitar in one of their movies, and you'll see it because it's going to be in Horse Feathers. We'll talk about it more then, but he was actually a really accomplished guitarist, and he has a couple of like really, uh, I mean, he has a couple of really famous songs that are like well, he's got like four or five songs that were like Groucho Staples uh, that you you may know like uh, Lydia the Tattooed Lady. It was a Groucho song, um, Hello, I Must Be Going, and of course um, we'll get to it later, but the famous Hooray for Captain Spaulding, and you'll get to hear, <laughs> you'll really get to hear Groucho sing in the earlier movies.
0: Oh, wow, well, see, I did not know those were his. that That's fantastic. I i love the way, he, though, he's rolling on the surround and he winds up in that little stateroom <laughs> and he realizes... OK, not a lot of room in here, but OK, I can make this work. He's going to try to make the magic happen, you know, for him Miss Claypool. And then, of course, he begins to open the suitcase to uh, learn that he's got some stowaways. And the best one is Harpo in the little drawer. And he's like, I'm certainly that wasn't how I folded my shirt. You know, yeah, I don't remember <laughs> our
1: shirt's snoring. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: I, I thought the four of them there together and particularly Alan Jones, who I would not have thought could play funny with them. Uh, he gets in a couple of good lines, and I'm like, you know, what? good for you, Alan
1: Jones. You're, you're hanging in here with the big boys. He really holds his own, especially in this movie. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. All We keep going back to talking about Margaret Dumont, and you kind of have to with the Marx Brothers movies, because she did like seven of them. But, you know, in real life, she was a uh, widowed millionaire, the wife of a millionaire who died. Now, I did not know that actually so, like, wow. this. <laughs> so like this character that she plays is not that far from her real life. And what's funny enough is that when she was young, she was in on vaudeville just like the Marx brothers were. And she did theater, and she did opera, like was an opera singer and had many, many like comic talents of her own just in the Marx brothers movies. The best part of her is her ability to not respond to keep a straight face to all the craziness going on around her. You know what I got
0: off of that or what it reminded me of again to, to do my forward comparisons? The way Diana Rigg plays opposite of Charles Grodin and all the Muppets in The Great Muppet Caper, where mm-hmm. she's Lady Holiday and she's supposed to be oh. this highfalutin woman. But Diana Rigg is a really funny actress <laughs> too, but she's playing it so straight. And and she's doing what I realize now, she's doing Margaret Dumont from this movie. <laughs> so that is amazing.
1: That's a good that's a good connection right there. That's that's top notch.
0: I think that's like my goal in these things is because these are these movies are so old. I can't imagine like some of our audience are like I can't believe you guys are doing this in the 30s. But I'm telling you all, like I didn't realize how much stuff got influenced by these things. And when we talk about this movie was a hit, it made like a million eight dollars, you know, one point eight million dollars in its day, which sounds like nothing. That would be like Avengers money in, in 1935. Like everybody thought, oh, this is never going to end. You know, that's why they got, you know, more movies out of, out of GM and all this kind of stuff. Um, I love the ordering of food uh, with the honking of the horns and how many eggs get rolled out there. They, just <laughs> the cavalcade of people that come in there, the maintenance people. It's, it becomes like the clown car, but let's
1: throw it in the stateroom. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe there's 15 people total <laughs> before uh, Marker Dumont comes <laughs> along and opens the door and everybody starts falling out. My my favorite part of that whole scene is when the the stewards come in and how easily (laughs) Harpo ends up laying on the trays of food.
0: I I know. I'm like, man, one, they had to work that out. And, I mean, he's not a big guy, but he's not a little person either. That's a human being. And those guys are just, you know, they're just hanging on to him because that's what they're supposed to do. And, yeah, that whole thing becomes
1: chaos. Uh, yeah, they brought in a a specific guy to write that script, a dude by the name of Al Bosberg, who has been involved in the Marx Brothers and was a big vaudeville comedy writer. It is weird even by comedy writer standards. If you know any comedy writers or comedy people, they're all a little weird. And he's especially weird because after he, he typed this scene up, then he tore all the pages into pieces and tacked them to his ceiling. And then Irving Thalberg and the Marx Brothers and, and assuming a horde of other people had to cut and paste it all back together to put it back together for the movie.
0: That sounds like a, uh, a CSI episode or something. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. Well, no wonder it uh, flows the way it does. Though. But it actually works, though. And I'll tell you why all of it works, though, because everybody here is, is doing a lot of stuff. Groucho carries that scene in, in – uh, a way that I don't know that he does anything else in the movie as well as this. He is so good in that moment because I think he realizes that he's the one that's got to direct all of that traffic and keep it moving and keep it funny. And that's the one thing I noticed in this one. I didn't notice all the harsh cuts that you got from the one-on-one with him and Chico. Mm -hmm. This one seemed to work a little bit more smoothly. So either they got better at cutting the film or – they had a they had better timing with it, but a lot of it I think in my mind rests on the way Groucho uses driftwood to just keep all of that chaos going. What you realize is that because he he's able to work through all of that, that's how he's able to keep his cons up because he, he's just he's always one
1: step in front of the next one. My, my, the the thing that I, all, I I can't not laugh at every time I watch this movie, which is quite often. I usually watch it once a year or so. Um, is when the girl shows up with the manicure tray and she asks him, do you want a manicure? And he says, no, come on in. Yes. That, that's perfect. That is exactly
0: right. <laughs> Let's just add one more log to the fire
1: <laughs>
0: as it gets going. So we, we get into, I, I want to make a note here and I want to ask you if you think I'm right on this. So Chico and Harpo get their piano scenes, which by the way, great look at like you're watching their hands and watching those guys play, particularly watching Chico play, I was like, "Holy cow, he really can play! This is an amazing player." And Harpo's harp again is great. But it's like these movies have their own little built-in intermission because at this time that that was big in movies, and it's like, "Well, now we're all going to take a break, and we're going to show you just how unbelievably
1: talented these two guys are." Yeah, that was that was one of the big things MGM act, and Irving Thalberg actually pushed for. They wanted like. He he maintained that they could make twice the money with half the jokes. Um, Thalberg did when he first brought the Marx Brothers over from Paramount, and yeah, it's it's almost like everybody gets a little showcase of the thing they do that isn't comedy. That's just funny because you've got Groucho singing, you've got Chico playing the piano, and you've got Harpo playing the harp and a little bit of piano, and it's a it's amazing to watch. Chico, if you, when you look at his hands as he plays the piano, you can see how weird of a technique he uses, but how effective of a technique it is. It's like, it's like it, when you watch an NBA game and you see somebody hoist up a, a, you know, a jump shot where it's ugly but effective because they do the, you know, they do the same thing every time. They know how the ball is going to travel. And it's, it's like, like that. the way, the way yeah.
0: Bill Cartwright from the Bulls used to shoot free throws, that weird cock arm. You know, oh yeah, but he would,
1: he would drill them every time, so you didn't say nothing about it. But it's funny because Chico in, in the vaudeville act would play the piano blindfolded. So I can I can believe it, man. Because I think you, you nailed it. His technique is so different, but it's
0: just so good, and he's just smooth, and you can tell he's just not. Uh, what I love is that they, they're doing part of their gig when they're just kind of with like the the servant people again. You know, and what I what I get from the Marx Brothers is, is that they like to be with the common folk, you mm-hmm. know, to to highlight that like all this luxury that everybody's sort of hung up on right now. To pull that off takes a team of people that you don't notice, and you really should. And I don't know if that was their intention or not, but I think that's a takeaway in modern eyes. You can look at and go, these guys put the focus on a group of people that
1: were largely ignored and maybe even shunned in society. I think that was definitely their focus because they they grew up dirt poor in like tenements. They grew up as poor as you can possibly be while still surviving childhood. Um, that's why they you know, that's why they all had jobs from when they were kids because you it was, you know, Chico and Harpo doing the piano. They would have to do their piano scam where they wouldn't be able to eat. So, no these guys are survivors and i think they want to show
0: these other people too in the midst of all this anarchy and chaos hey don't forget about the people
1: that really kind of keep this thing running
0: and, uh, and really, it's neat and,
1: yeah and I, and i really think that that grouchos continued to hold a grudge after the great depression <laughs> yeah <laughs> when he lost when he lost he lost 250 thousand dollars in the great depression oh wow so so he lost four million dollars wow he lost every dollar that he had earned, like, years of show business. And he held that grudge for the rest of his life. He lived to be really old. and, and yeah. Really successful, but man, he never let that go. I'm sure he. I bet when he died, he had lots of money
0: stuffed in the couch. I'm just gonna say that. So oh, yeah. That that would be that kind of guy. Um, we got to talk about the the three aviators real quick and their uh, ZZ top beards, as I called it uh, in my notes <laughs> or whatever. Okay, so the whole bit is that these are famous aviators that are going to be celebrated when they get back to. To New York, and they all have long beards and they all sleep together in the same bed. That's number one. And they all sleep so soundly that <laughs> these guys are able to cut the beards off of them and then glue them to themselves so that Ricardo, Tommaso, and Fiorello can pose as the aviators and get off the boat because Lasparri has outed them already. And um, they, they've had to get out and then hide again after this great escape plan from them
1: yeah well it, it wasn't even a deliberate escape plan i think it was just kind of an accident because remember uh fiorello throws tomaso's um kazoo or whatever it is out the wind out the window and he dives out of the porthole after it and just happens to <laughs> run into that rope yes yes it's all happenstance right well what i wanted to ask you
0: is as a man who has kept a very full beard for as long as I've known you, and I imagine you've had it for a number of years. Would you ever sleep so soundly so I could cut it off of you? You wouldn't notice?
1: Um, probably. Uh, when I was in that, college, that is amazing. Uh, when I was in college, I slept soundly enough that they put uh, people put shaving cream in my hands and then did that thing where they tickle your nose so you rub shaving cream on your face. So I can imagine <laughs> at the the length of my beard is it would be pretty easy for someone if they didn't get – if they grabbed just under my chin and got all of my beard and just uh, cut along my jawline, they could probably get enough to glue to their – they could definitely get enough to glue to their face for sure. As long as they didn't try to do it like a straight razor shave, they've got me, yeah. <laughs>
0: That's amazing to think about, because holy cow, I, I I just can't imagine that. But I did think that was funny. Uh, when they all, of course, get to the New York, uh, we get more hilarity to ensue as these guys cannot, absolutely cannot lie on the fly, and they can't make up anything good. And the sheriff that's when the sheriff gets involved. I love this guy because he's like the typical Irish cop or whatever that won't oh, yeah. let it go ever.
1: Yeah, Henderson is, is is a lot of fun, uh, and uh, yeah, he looks—he's the most Irish cop-looking person that I've ever seen. And, oh yeah. And that whole scene uh, is—that is, uh, whole scene is is a lot of funny for me, especially with this beard, because I can't tell you how many times I've drank a glass of water and just had came away looking like Chico or uh, with uh, came away looking looking like Harpo and not even been aware of it. Exactly.
0: (laughs) So all of this ultimately results in the fact that Driftwood and Rosa both get fired from the opera because last party is the jerk of all time. Can we just talk about that? This woman has come all the way to New York and you make sure she gets thrown out with the rest of these bumps too.
1: Oh yeah, because I mean, if she's not gonna, it's put out or get out, man. If she's not gonna put out, you gotta get out.
0: Yeah, it looks like it. So I, I do know then. I when they they start conspiring, I'm like, oh, it's it's about to go down. <laughs> like this is, this opera is going to be destroyed before it's over with. And what happens in this this final scene here <laughs> uh, before we finally get Ricardo and Rosa on, on the stage to sing it and, and get us out of it? is nothing short of, well, we've used the word, but it's it's good and appropriate here. It's nothing short of pure anarchy. <laughs> it's when You've got people that are just, nope, this show is not going to go the way you think. And it just goes to hell in a
1: handbasket. Yeah, they've got, uh, I don't know, eight different backdrops fall onto the stage. Um, <laughs> there's one point where Las Perry is... Is on one side of a backdrop, and the person he's singing to is on the other side of the backdrop. They sneak take me out to the ball game in the middle of the opera music. Yep, it, it's <laughs> it's just yeah. Com-
0: complete with 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 Harpo and Chico throwing a ball across the the orchestra pit to each other, and uh, Harpo hitting a a, a good double uh, with a <laughs> Stradivarius. Um, so <laughs> and then of course smashing it into Smith and um, but. The, the point is that we get Alan Jones and Kenny Carlisle on stage and Buddy, I mean you said it in the plot summary bring the house down, they brought the house down with that song, they were amazing and I know they keep cutting away to like fake opera scenery or whatever, that they shot from you know, stock footage of operas or whatever but it's it doesn't matter, it still looks amazing
1: oh yeah, it looks amazing and it, and it sounds amazing and this is still, you know I think sound film is like six years old at this point To me, Alan Jones is like one of the better movie singers of this time period because he he, he modulates his voice. And that's the one like downside, I think, that you can say about Kitty Carlisle is that when it's opera time, she just goes full opera. And it, it can be a lot to it can take a lot of the nuance out of her voice, I guess, where when Alan Jones sings, he's he's up and down. He's really emoting.
0: No, I, I agree completely. He clearly is in control of his whole thing. But I think that's – I almost want to lay that off as part of the characters. You know, mm-hmm. the, this guy, even though he's just in the background or whatever, is so in control and so knows what he what he can do. And it just – it's just that, you'll know, give me the chance, and then all of a sudden, holy cow, you know, this guy can really bring it down. And proven to the point that when the last party finally returns to the stage and he gets hit by an apple. You know, they boot off the stage. It's like, well, this guy, that, he got what he deserved. And I love them singing the encore as we, we do the reprise of the joke of negotiating yet another contract.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good capper joke because this movie has two of their absolutely most famous scenes in the contract scene and in the stateroom scene. So it's nice to get that reprise uh, back again a little bit later at the end of the movie where they're negotiating yet another contract. Exactly, but was the
0: contract worth it, Ron? It's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for *A Night at the Opera*?
1: I gotta go with uh, I gotta go with a large popcorn with extra butter. It's almost an extra large popcorn for me. It, it, yeah. You know what? I'm gonna go for it. Extra large popcorn. I love this movie. This is one of my favorite all time movies. I I discovered it. Backwards because I first saw the remake-ish with uh, the remake-ish movie Brain Donors from the early 90s with uh, John Tarturo playing the Groucho Marx role, and then when I saw that it was based off of A Night at the Opera, and it's basically the same script, kept you know 100% whole. I went back and watched A Night at the Opera, and that made me fall down a real Marx Brothers hole, so to speak. And yeah, I just I love this movie. This movie's great. And it's the best Alan Jones performance. It's some top notch Margaret Dumont and the March brothers are like on their game. It's it's not as uproariously funny as some of their earlier flicks. Cause some of the earlier flicks it's like being beaten with a comedy stick. But this is just a really good execution of what MGM wanted the Marx Brothers to be and what the MGM, what MGM thought the Marx Brothers could be. And uh, all that to say, I'm a huge fan of it.
0: I'm going to say this about this movie. And this is something that I always say when people ask, like do this or do that. And, you know, they they throw a lot of comedies at me and we've talked about how that's not really my scene. And the thing that I always put at, at movies with genius comics is that there always comes a point in these movies for me where we've just gone on too long. And there's just, there's not really a story here. And it's just being held up by your stand up routine. Chris Rock's movies do this a lot. A lot of Eric Murphy's movies do this and that's nothing against them. That's just a common trope. I mean, everybody falls into that at one time or another. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't like and Eddie Murphy does part of his routine in trading places. I've heard him do that routine about the Kung Fu grip G.I. Joe being broke at Christmas thing a hundred different times. It works perfectly when he sneaks it in there because it's not allowed to go on too long.
1: Mm-hmm. You know?
0: and, and that's the problem is, is a lot of these movies, it's kind of going on too long. And there's parts of days, of the races where I felt like eh, it kind of went on a little bit too long. This one works because it is a movie. It is a story. It has a <laughs> beginning, a middle and an end. And it's built around two classic, classic. Uh, scenes. And then that ending is just pure anarchy and fun and Alan Jones is so good in this and the March Brothers clearly listened to Thalberg when he told them they need to be on their game for this first one out of the gate and whatever he did and whoever else did to edit and cut this thing up made it a fantastic watch. This is extra large popcorn material all the way because of all the different things that I've mentioned that it that it re, you know is referenced by years later and even today and i you know there's another three dozen out there that we need to talk about this movie is so much fun and it's totally worth a watch so high recommend and extra large popcorn for me as well so ron tell folks how they can follow you on the social media and hey you got any podcasts uh, you want to give a shout out to
1: yeah uh, i always do you can follow my written work at den of geek.com and den of geek.us um follow me on Twitter at Hollywood Ron but I don't know why you'd want to do that um, yeah and for uh, podcast recommendations I'm gonna t- I'm gonna recommend a podcast that I believe you turned me on to Jay called dream gun film reads yeah it is a lot of fun it's uh, a bunch of Irish comedian types who rewrite movies to make them funny they perform in a perform them in front of a live audience at about an hour. And they're just chock full of jokes and weirdness. And it's a, they just did uh, the Shawshank Redemption. And it's the funniest depiction of prison rape you'll ever, you'll ever hear.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, the one I'm going to recommend this time is over under fair, the final word in pop culture relevance. They come out once a month, Dave and Lacey and Roger and the gang debate everything from movies to music to award shows all around a very simple premise: is this thing over, under, or fairly rated? And they have some good discussions in there. And there's I did tons of cool episodes. They just did like best picture for the Oscars um, not that long ago, and always have a good time. And they're good pod friends as well. So over, under, fair, recommend them. You can follow them on Twitter at overunderfair and find them wherever podcasts are found. Highly recommend you give those guys a shout out. And uh, and give them a listen because they are a lot of fun. Of course, folks, you can find more episodes of Filmstrip at our website, FilmstripPodcast.com. That'll take you to the Anchor.fm page where you'll find feeds everywhere you can subscribe and download the show. Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. Follow the show's social media at FilmstripPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook as well. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening, to Filmstrip.